Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box. I'm Cam Connor. With my son, Chris, this is episode number 51. So this could be a short one. Might not be. I guess it depends on the questions you get asked at or some of the topics. I know we have some some fun topics. One has nothing to do with hockey, but it's kind of interesting. We're going to talk about the time that you saw a UFO. And it's timely because I think in the States they're releasing photos of potential UFO photos. So I don't know this story. So I'll hear what you have to say. We're also going to talk about the Oilers getting swept in the playoffs first round. And then the topic that's been keeping you busy the past week is Montreal Canadiens against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And as of this recording, it's about to be game six. Uh, The game will go to Montreal where they'll have, I believe, 2,500 fans in the crowd. So, Dad, do you want to talk a little bit about what uh, the interview requests you've been getting? People have been remembering that goal, what you thought of the, the series so far, and do you think Montreal can win? Well, let me just back it up. You talked about the 2,500 fans going to be in Montreal. I just heard on the sports today that the ticket prices go anywhere from $1,700 up to $8,000 for a ticket. I love watching the Canadians, Canadians play, but I think I'll watch it at home sitting on the couch for that kind of money. I wonder, though, if a lot of companies it's just going to be a business write-off, like they're taking their clients, so that amount of money actually, which is unfortunate because families and younger kids probably can't. Well, 100%, these, 100% and that's, uh, you know, it all depends, obviously, like you said, who gets access to buy those tickets. You know, a lot of times it's a season ticket holders get first shot. I'm not sure how they're doing it, but as you know, Madison Square Gardens, there's only a thousand tickets that go on sale for each home game, and all the rest are season ticket holders, like corporations, Fortune 500 companies, and uh, so often when you know you get the name teams that are in town, it's packed in Madison Square. When you get the not so popular teams in there, all the most expensive seats are pretty well. The red seats are are, are next to empty um, because the corporations they don't they don't. They can't use them. They're not worried like an individual who's paid some hard-earned money to go to the game. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who's in the crowd. But regardless, it'll be probably like a whole new game. And Montreal should have the advantage having some of the crowd cheering for them, which is pretty unique this year for any Canadian team. Well, you know, I'm really looking forward to Game 6, which is played tomorrow night. You know, I... I've always felt the energy, especially home playoff games, the crowds into it, anticipating a really good hockey game. And the the players, they're pumped up. They want to win, especially, you know, home games. It's, it's going to be, with the 2,500 fans in there, there's going to be, I think the 2,500 fans are going to sound like a lot more fans in there. They're going to be excited to be going to the game and the players are going to be excited to have some fans. I think that's going to help the Montreal Canadiens uh, on the ice, that uh, that energy. And I certainly 
wouldn't be surprised to see Montreal push to Game 7. I, I really believe that the fans in the stands will help them. But then again, you know what? The Leafs haven't had to play in front of any fans. They may help them too. They're, they, they're going to be excited. And the thing is, if you play for Toronto, you as a player, you do not. You want to end it right now. You don't want to go to Game 7 where it's a coin flip. So it's going to be exciting hockey, and I think everybody should be watching this game. And it'll be interesting because Toronto always has fans in every city. So we'll see if uh, a few Toronto Maple Leafs fans squeeze into the... Well, they may not let them in yeah, if they they're wearing a Toronto play. jersey. They might kick them out. So are you predicting that they'll go to Game 7? And do you have any thoughts on the, the previous games that I guess the last two have gone into overtime? Well, you know, it's always exciting overtime because, you know, the team that's not favored to win, it's down to overtime, right? And again, both goalies on Toronto and Montreal, they've been playing some good hockey, made some good saves. So when you get into overtime, anything can happen. And so with the last game... Montreal won in the very first minute. And, you know, a lot of times goals are scored on mistakes, directly or indirect mistakes. And that's what happened. The defenseman pinched. And one of the Toronto players did not look when he threw the puck across. And that's one of the zones you're taught right as a little kid. Don't throw it through the front of your own net and, you know, make a pass. Or you don't throw it blindly you know, towards the point, because look what happened. You threw it to the other team, two on zero in overtime, and uh, there was no mistake about it. So it, it, it was a good game, but, yep, the playoffs are exciting. Overtime's excited, and uh, Montreal, obviously, they needed that win to stay stay in the race. And you've been keeping busy. Different sports talk shows have been contacting you for interviews do you have anything that stands out about that are you getting tired of talking about that goal <laughs> no you know what i mean i'm uh i'm getting obviously i'm getting a little bit of press right now because of my overtime goal and uh it's not like i talk about it every year this is a special year with montreal and toronto so for me i'm getting a little more attention than i'm used to um, I've been fortunate enough. I've, I've been on the Edmonton radio talk shows. I've been on Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal. And recently, I had to get up at 6 a.m. for an interview with Florida. They got a radio station or a sports station that wanted to interview me about overtime and about, uh, you know, my thoughts on uh, Tampa Bay versus Florida and some of the other series. And those are fun to do. There's a two-hour time difference, so I don't set my alarm. I just always wake up early, so when I have to get up, otherwise, you know, if I've slept in that one particular day and then I promised I'd be on the air by 8 o'clock their time and I sleep in, so I woke up at 2 and then 3 and then I closed my eyes and I woke up at 5.15. I said, oh, I better get up right now because I do not want to fall asleep again. So it was an early interview, but... It was the first time I've been interviewed out of Florida, so that was very nice, and thank you very much. And if anyone wants to know what these podcasts are, most of the, the interviews have been uh, uploaded as podcasts, so I know you've retweeted a bunch on your Twitter account, so people can just visit that at Cam Connor NHL. You recently, I guess this morning, posted a photo that you, you found a stash of photos from your, the 70s and 80s, and I know you'll be posting 
throughout the next couple of weeks we have some interesting ones that you found but the one today was a photo of you Gordy Howe and uh, what's number 26 again Ron Hansis and a lot of people were interested to see that photo because Houston arrows yeah back in the 70s there's not a lot of photos compared to I don't even know did you have team photographers and things yeah we didn't have team photographers but there's always independent photographers or photographers that work for the news local newspapers and you know I've got a 13 book a scrapbook that my wife has been clipping articles out since we were 15 years old and so it's it's got pretty pretty extensive and so she actually was going through that scrapbook and found a, a lot of pictures that she just brought to our attention and your attention, Chris. And so we're going to post a few of those up that that haven't been out there. But yeah, we, we and then these photographers, if they got a nice what they consider a nice shot of us, they would just send it to our dressing room and we would get them. And so I've kept uh, a bunch of them, not all of them. So that's that's where these postings are coming from is other people giving them to me yes if you want to see that i think it's also on your instagram someone wrote that's a great picture uh, glenn sather is in the background along with dave lang langevin 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 so if anyone wants to see that take a look and someone wrote uh, i don't know if you know this answer dad but they asked you curious to see gordy holding his right-handed stick as a left-hander would with right hand on top maybe just a random moment or was he ambidextrous do you have any idea you know it's i i i didn't even notice that gordy would uh skate around sometimes holding the stick the opposite way and i think at one time i did ask him but i don't remember his answer but yeah he'd skate around he was a right-handed shot and uh, he he would uh hold it you know as if he shot left I don't really know why, and I know he could he could actually shoot a puck, you know, from the left side or the right side. Right side. His wrists and forearms were so strong, but I I just can't remember. But Gordy would skate around like that quite a bit, and uh, I'm sorry, I just can't remember why he told me or what the reason and was. You also posted, uh, and and you've mentioned this story before on the podcast, uh, but in case there's new listeners that a, a photo of you with inline skates and, and that the, right. the Rangers team was kind of invited to try them out over the summer and with the hopes that someone would invest in this new idea of rollerblades inline skates and you said you almost killed yourself a couple times and if you look at the picture which again you posted to Twitter and Instagram you had to stop by a, a knob at the front of the skate right yeah I'll tell you the stories story on the inline skate and the rangers we were having practice one day and uh the manager came up craig patrick and herb brooks was there and a few other people and uh, they said after practice i want everybody shower and sit in the dressing room we've got somebody coming in to talk to you so didn't say too much more than that and so if i remember correctly this young guy was from minneapolis st paul or minnesota area and uh, he had some connections with Craig Patrick, I think. And so he came in and uh, he was talking to us about inline skates. Now, we hadn't heard of this. And I'm going to say this was 80 or 81. He talked about, you know, he, he back then you used to have rollerblades with two sets of wheels beside each other. 
which I don't know why I always had trouble on those things. But when they put him in line, it was uh, just like skating for hockey. So anyways, he talked about this new product that he made. And uh, when he was all finished, he'd say, you know, I need some seed money. And, you know, all the all the hockey players were making good money for the time. I mean, not making money like the guys are making today. But everybody made pretty well six figures. And, and so he said, okay, who's interested in investing in this new product, Inline Skates? And there's not one guy on their team that put their hand up. Nobody was interested. And, you know, in hindsight, which is so much of life, we could have, each of us put in $10,000. And if we lost our investment, it wasn't going to change our life one little bit. What it was is back then, they he, he just had the rollerblades themselves. And you had to own a pair of skates. And so what the Rangers, when nobody wanted to invest, the Rangers said, well, we'll buy, I think it was 25 pair of these skates. And the, there was a skate back then called a Lang. It was like a plastic mold with a inline, inline, I think it's called. Like it's, it's a cushion that goes in there and you put your foot in. And um, so they bought these skates and then they took the blades off those skates, took the rivets out and put the inline blade in, the inline roller blades in, and rivet them on. And so that was the first prototype for us, for these inline skates. So the stopper nowadays is on the heel, and you tilt, you put your foot in front of you, and you, you know, drag that uh, stopper. But those first pair was, the stopper was in the front, and you just drag your foot like an anchor. And personally, I prefer that way way more than sticking, because I was always worried about sticking my leg out front, you know, jamming it and wrecking the ligaments on my knees. If you just drag it like an anchor, it worked a lot better. And I really knew I missed the boat on this investment when uh, my family and I, we were in Turkey. There was kids rollerblading in Turkey. And I said, man, it's all over the world. So that's, that's, that's that picture that was in there. Those were the first rollerblades that I knew of that came out in about 80, 81. And, uh, you know, they're so popular. They're all over the world now. And as you were talking, I, I saw a comment on your Instagram from, from the picture of uh, with you and Gordy Howe that says, it's really nice. It says, although you voice some regret of your time in the WHA, they are great memories, Mr. Connor. As a native Texan and Houst Houstonian, I'm so thankful for the Howes and your time with the Arrows or I might not have been exposed to a sport that I grew to love any other way. The Houston Arrows were life-changing for me. Thank you for being a part of it. So that's nice. Thank you you know, thank you for that uh, posting. Houston Arrows, we were an entertaining team. We had guys that could scrap. We had a good hockey team. I mean, a real good hockey team. And uh, we entertained. You know, it's like a lot of the world hockey teams. We didn't sell out every night, but we had a core of, you know, six, seven thousand people, eight thousand that would come to every game. We exposed the game of hockey to Houston, Texas, and uh, I had a seven-year no-cut, no-trade contract with the Houston Arrows, and uh, after two years of being there, the team folded, and I loved the city of Houston. It was, they treated me well. Nothing but good things to say about Houston in return. Yeah, and your regrets with the WHA is not about the team or the 100 percent right, Chris. It's more that it folded. Right. And it yes. was a financial yes. decision. That's yeah. that's 100% right.
So I guess on the flip side, the Oilers, which were projected to do pretty well uh, during these playoffs, got eliminated in four games straight. So what are your thoughts? What do you think went wrong? And I feel like we've had this conversation almost every year. Is it a coaching thing? Is it administration? Is it the whole organization? Is it just bad luck? What are your thoughts? You know, I'm going to give my opinion. I'm always honest. And um, the one thing I don't want to do is just shoot my mouth off and then get the Oilers organization pissed at me. Like, you know, this is just my observation from a guy that played the game. And, you know, I'm on the outside looking in. And obviously, you know, I don't know the day-to-day what goes on and why things happen. I just know whatever's in the paper or if I get some scoops from somebody close to the action. And, you know, my opinion is no different than a reporter, right? They throw their opinions in the paper and some of them is garbage and some of them make some sense. So, in hindsight, my observation when I watched the hockey games with the Oilers, I look at this and I look at Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl and I look at the Winnipeg Jets. Winnipeg Jets a bigger, for the most part, bigger, stronger players. And they were pushing Connor McDavid around. Like he didn't back down one little bit, nor did Dreisaitl, but they took the body and they cross-check him and they get in his way and they rough him up. Like that would never have happened. When Glenn Sather was in charge of the Oilers, Wayne Gretzky was on that team or Messier, somebody started roughing up their key players, there would have been hell to pay. I know this is playoffs and you got to really watch yourself, but you can't let Connor McDavid get grinded down and pushed around. And that's, in my opinion, what happened out there. So that was one thing I observed. And the other thing is, because they were so much bigger than the Oilers on the whole, they were pushing our guys like we would lose the battle for the pucks and they would get out-muscled. Sure, we got some fast forwards, but we also have, you know, some guys, you know, that not that big, and they could skate like the wind. But when they got to try to, you know, go out and get a puck and the big guys in the way, they got to go around them. They don't go through them. And I, I only pretty well saw, for the most part, and it's not every game, but I saw Zach Cassian, and I saw number 16, which is Kara, I believe his name is. These are two bigger Oilers. And they played like big men, and they took their bodies, and they got involved. But we, ne- I needed to see more guys play that kind of hockey because in playoffs, it's a grinding, bumpy type of game. And, um, you know, if the Jets wanted to beat the Oilers, they couldn't do what they did all season long. They didn't play the bump, grindy game. They played a skating game, and don't hit me, and I don't hit you. And the Oilers beat them seven out of nine games. So when you get to the playoffs, you get to say, hmm, we lost most of our games against the Oilers. Why? Well, they didn't play the Oilers games, which is just skating, because that's Oilers would beat you. So they played the grinding and leaned on the Oilers. And uh, I, I read in today's paper where the GM for the, for Edmonton said his emphasis for next year, he's going to get more scoring. He needs more scoring. Well, you only need one goal to win a hockey game. And I learned in Montreal when, you know, this Montreal Canadian teams won so many Stanley Cups year after year after year. When I was there, you know, we had the 
best defense. They were big, mobile. You know, they weren't goony at all. But they could lean on you. They had long reach. You, you just you just had so much trouble getting by them. So they emphasized, okay, we've got a real good goalie. Now we want the best defensemen out there. And the forward lines, they had good forwards. They could score goals. So with the Canadians, and I'm going back to the team that was very, very successful, we all knew our jobs in our own end. What is your job if you're the winger? What is your job if you're, you know, the sentiment in your own end? And it's typically, you can make it simple in your own end. The two wingers, um, you know, in the defensive zone covers the defenseman. I can't believe how many shots I saw from the defenseman against the Oilers. Those points weren't covered. They get them. And for the most part, not a rule, when the defenseman on the other team got the puck, you know, if I'm the winger and that's my defenseman, I'm supposed to be covering. He's got the puck. I am making sure that that puck, you know, the defenseman is shooting that puck and I'm in line with that goalie, so it has to hit me. It's got to go wide or it has to hit me. And I saw so often that they weren't trying to block the puck. That puck went through and hit the net so many times through screens. So in my mind, you know, maybe they're playing a different system. Um, but the defense got way, way too many shots on net. Way too many. Um, when you get shots on net, there's rebounds. There's so many opportunities if you hit that net. And so if those two defensemen are covered, what's down below? You get two defensemen and the sentiment against the three forwards on the other team. So it's just a two-on-two -two up high and a three-on-three -three below. You're not outnumbered. And uh, that's the way I was taught to play, but I didn't see that. So, so Chris, you know, those are the, my observations. So if I was the Oilers GM, next year I'm not looking for the best scoring. I'd make sure I'd, you know, bring back some of the free agents like Nugent Hopkins. That that guy is really good. He loves Edmonton. The, the fans love him. Connor McDavid, Dreisaitl. And they've got some up-and-comers on the team. And... Um, I think those guys can handle the workload, you know, as far as scoring goals. And I would concentrate on going out there. And I think what they said in the paper is that Holland wants one more goalie. So you get the best goalie you can find. I don't know if you're going to be able to trade for it. So you might have to make one of your high draft choices. Get a goalie or for sure get like Winnipeg. And I forgot the guy's name. He's six foot seven, 225 pounds. I know when Connor McDavid was trying to go around him, that guy has such a long reach and Chara, just like Chara. Yeah, you try to go around him, but he's got that stick knocking the puck away. So I would go out there and get the best D possible. You know, that, that's that's how I think it should be. Remy D, from what I saw, what happened in the playoffs, to build a team more like that. And then when you get into the playoffs, you have those bodies that can grind with the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, we didn't have it. And unfortunately, you know, we lost four straight. And the, don't get me wrong, the Oilers played very, very well. This series could have gone either way, especially that game three when the Oilers, I believe it was going into third. They're up four to one, you know, four goals for the Oilers, one for the Jets. And then bang, 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 it's tied. And then they lost the game. So that's my observation. That's my opinion. This is not being critical of the Oilers' management. This is just one guy's opinion, right or wrong.
And we have, we last episode, and I guess every episode, we ask for feedback or questions, podcast ideas. So uh, there's an email from Patrick, and he suggests having Ben Wilson on the podcast. And uh, he has a few questions about him, if we ever get him on the podcast. But he he asks, uh, and I believe you forwarded this to me, so you've read this, but I don't know if you've thought of the answers yet. Did you ever catch up to Bowman over the years? Did he lighten up at all? How was Sather in comparison? And was Babcock similar from what you heard? Great talk on how a team is created and the effort to be great. And he also mentions that he ordered a t-shirt and it's on its way to Ontario. So thank you for that. Uh, good man. You know, I actually have never ordered my own t-shirts, but I just did. I ordered a golf shirt and a hoodie. So uh, I'm actually looking forward to, to getting that. Um, so what question do you want me to answer first, Chris? There's like five of them coming at me. Have I ran across Bowman? Not at all. You know, he's pretty well out east. He's in Chicago, you know, where his son is the GM, I think. But our paths have never crossed. He's never reached out to me, nor have I seen him or tried to reach out to Scotty Bowman. And, uh, you know, I can't hate. I don't hate the man at all. Um, he's obviously doing what he thinks is right. All I've ever really tried to say, Scotty Bowman wasn't the coach for me. I didn't like him when he patted me on the shoulder and said, go get that guy in so many words. I don't like coach that does that. And I didn't like getting yelled at every single time he saw me. And, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. I don't think he ever said, oh, how you doing? And a you know, nice game or working hard in practice, keep your head up. Like, honestly, I really don't believe I ever got one word of encouragement uh, from Scotty. So, like I said, I don't hate the man, but I just know that uh, he he wasn't the guy that's going to bring out my talent, uh, and uh, it's unfortunate. And I think uh, another part of the question was, was Glenn Sather similar to Bowman? Not at all. You know, Glenn would, uh, he would not hesitate to give you a compliment. He would not hesitate to just to point out things that you've done, right or wrong. But Glenn was, he was a little bit more outgoing and he was somebody that you could always talk to. He didn't always have a, like Scotty, he always had a skull on his, skull on his face when he was talking to me, like every time, like, what are you talking to me for? You know, with Glenn, the door was always open and he talked to you like a real equal, like a person. I know he cared about you and well, myself and all the other players. And so Glenn... It wasn't an accident, uh, you know, that he brought along a lot of these young players to greatness. And I think anybody that played for Bowman, for for Glenn Sather would have nothing but positives to say. I think everybody loved him. He was, uh, he called a spade a spade, but he wasn't afraid to throw out some compliments and throw some jokes out there. We never got to know Bowman's personality because he wouldn't reveal it. And you've kept in touch with Glenn Sather over the years, and he's always been nice to you. Well, I have. Exactly right. You know, Glenn's given me his phone number, and so when he was with the Rangers as a GM, I didn't really know the schedule. I just thought, you know, oh, yeah, okay, practice over. I'm going to call Glenn, and I phoned him. And he, he picked up my call every single time. I found out it was game day. And usually game day, you know, you're pretty well focused on the game. Doesn't matter if you're a player or management. But yet he took the time and he answered my phone call. And when I found out it was game day, I apologized. And so, 
So Glenn has been very good to me over the years, and uh, I, I appreciate the man for sure. I just wish I would have been able to spend more time with him. I was hurt quite a bit when I was with Glenn, but, you know, that's just the way it goes. And if anyone has any topic ideas or questions, send them to viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. And everyone who has listened to the first 50 and now 51 episodes knows, Dad, that you're not a nut job, <laughs> that you're not a liar, that you tell the truth. And I don't know this story, but apparently, and my mom was the one who's like, get him to talk about the UFO that he saw. So why don't you, since it's topical, sure. and we and a, a few episodes ago we asked, would people be interested in stories that are not hockey related? And everyone said yes. So let's hear this story about when you and your friend yeah. saw a UFO. So I was like 20, 21 years old. And uh, my buddy and I, Riley Wilkinson, we were in Winnipeg and we said, let's go to Vegas. All right. So we jumped in his car. I can't remember. I'm going to say it took two or three days to get to Vegas. And I remember it was so freaking hot and he didn't have any air conditioning in his car. And we had to roll the windows down. But it's just warm air coming in. But at least it's a, a little bit of a breeze. So it was a long two or three days. It was hot, hot, hot. And it was at nighttime now. We were driving through the Nevada desert. And if you ever driven through the Nevada desert, at least the section of the road we were on, it was this... Like the, you can look from the road, and there's no buildings. It's a desert, and it's as flat as a tabletop. And so, my buddy Riley is driving his vehicle, and I'm in the passenger side, and uh, it's black. And 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 you can see obviously if there's a car coming at you, or even if you look in the rearview mirror, you can see you know some lights way back there. You just know somebody's out there. But it was black. We we saw nothing, and all of a sudden Riley says. Holy cow, Cam, look behind. So I turned around, and uh, there was three lights, not horizontal and not vertical, but on a angle between horizontal and vertical, like three separate lines. And I looked, and they're right behind the vehicle. And we said, well, where did that come from? Because we know there wasn't anybody behind us. There was not even any roads coming onto that main road we were on. And so I looked back forward again, and... And my buddy Riley's, he's looking, he says, it's right behind us. I look back and it's right behind us again. We look at each other and we look back again and it's gone. And we said, well, what the heck? It, you know, like it, it can't just disappear like that. You know, I've seen some UFO shows and they've actually shown that same three lights in a, uh, on an angle and exactly what we saw and they've said other people have seen that too this was right behind our vehicle and i remember telling my wife this story and i said then it just took off it was gone we didn't it just disappeared and she said well obviously you know they went and they were kind of spying on you looking in the vehicle and they determined that there was no intelligent life in this vehicle so they just buggered off so i said okay fair enough but yeah I believe it was a UFO, just because I've seen it on TV, exactly what I saw right behind me. And plus, it was in a desert, and you could see light coming from a long ways away. So it just appeared, stayed with us for like 30 seconds, and then uh, disappeared. So if anyone has questions about this, this UFO sighting, <laughs> send them our way. We actually do know people that have said there are files on UFOs. So I don't know what I think of it, but I'm sure there has to be... 
other life forms out there besides us. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Were you scared or? No, it was like we weren't scared, but we were just going, well, what the heck is this? That, that's all it was. It was like, this is weird, you know. Like, I think if I would have saw a spaceship in front of us, I would have been afraid. But, it, but you know, like I don't, I, I, it was just these three lights. So it wasn't something that made us scared. It was like, what the hell is this? And you so, weren't drunk? No. Don't, <laughs> never drink and drive. Although I wasn't driving. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. We'll see what if what people think about that one. Yeah. Well, you know what? Sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Chris. But, you know, if somebody else has got some UFO, UFO stories, I think I'd love to hear them. I mean, don't don't make something up, but I mean, you know, give us some real stuff, like real stories. I, I you know, we'll even air them. Up. We'll and you know, put your name, so we can verify. We'll put your name with the story. But I would love to hear if you've got some story about a UFO. And we'll see what uh, the the game brings tomorrow. Toronto, Montreal should be an interesting one. So, do you have a, a score prediction for tomorrow? Well, you know, again, that's that's usually. Toronto has is, is got more firepower most nights than Toronto. So I believe that if Montreal is going to win, they're going to have to try to keep that score low. You can't exchange goals with Toronto's. Like, you know, like the old Oilers. If you want to score six goals against the Oilers, they'll score eight against you. They could do that. So I just got to believe that uh, they're not going to get a lot of chance, chances against Toronto. So when they get those few chances... They got to take advantage. They got to bury it. And again, I think that the Toronto players, excuse me, the Montreal players have to screen that goalie, get in tight, and just get the ugly goals, the rebounds off your butt. Like get the ugly goals. That's that's what's gonna that's what's gonna win it for you. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's it's gonna be like a you know four three game, another four three game or three two somewhere like that. Okay, we'll see. And before we go, I just wanted to ask everyone to subscribe to the podcast because right now we're on a pretty regular schedule of episodes. But once it's the summer and hockey's over, we'll have a couple episodes here or there when dad has something to say. So the best way to know when a new episode has been posted is if you subscribe to the podcast. So until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam. Thank you.